I spent um, the first half of my life in prison right. and um, addicted to heroin. Um, knowing that perhaps I have ruined his or her life by investigating him or her. You have to decolonize, okay, the, the white academy. Hello and welcome to Switchboard, Varsity's flagship podcast. I'm Raphael Gorb-Hoffman, joined in our studio by Ariel Cohen for this week's episode on Maturing with Age. We interviewed three mature students from the UK, Hong Kong and Nigeria to find out more about their backgrounds and experiences before arriving in Cambridge. First, we spoke with Christian Austin, who graduated last week with an MPhil in criminology from Darwin College. A heroin addict for 17 years, Christian spent 10 years in prison. Raised on a council estate in Hampshire and first taken to a prison cell aged six, Christian spoke to us about his journey from Dartmoor to Darwin. But first, a quick heads up, this episode contains explicit details about drugs and addiction. I spent um, the first half of my life in prison, in and out of prison, recidivist, just non-stop trouble. Right. And um, addicted to heroin right. for 17 years. Uh, yeah, you had, to, you, you, know, you had to get money, acquisitive crime, Credit card fraud, shoplifting, dealing drugs, whatever. Just money to make sure that you could get heroin to prevent yourself from having withdrawal symptoms and becoming really ill. I started taking heroin at 18. I started smoking weed and um, early in that, long before that I was sniffing glue when I was about 12, 13 years old. And then around about the time I was 15, 16 years old I started smoking weed. And then did that for a couple of years and... In my 18th year, I start, I went from smoking weed to taking LSD, magic mushrooms, cocaine, barbiturates, and finally ended up injecting heroin by the end of the year. It was a very quick progression, yeah. 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 The, 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 um, the council estate I grew up on in Hampshire, um, there was a lot of crime, there was a lot of drugs, and it was just like, you know, it was, it, it was, for me and my cohort, it was pretty much... A given. That's where we were going. I, I, I first went into prison when I in 1975, and the last time I was in prison was 1997. Yeah, I spent 10 years in. I actually spent 10 years in a prison cell over those 20 years. How old were you when you last shot heroin? Uh, 35. August. August. August 1997. I rarely injected in prison. They, you know, you could get older syringes, but. It's, it's um, far more dangerous injecting prison than anywhere else, I guess. But um, no, in prison we'd normally smoke it. The last time I took heroin was in prison, in 1997. Smoked it, chasing the dragon on silver foil. Smoke it on silver foil. Yeah. Did you know it would be your final time doing heroin? No. 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 I just I um, I was in prison yet again, looking at probably another three three years prison sentence. And I wrote to a drug rehabilitation centre. It was the third time I'd written to the uh, rehab. The pre- preceding two times, they, they kind of said, well, we think you're just trying to avoid prison and you're not ready yet. So I wrote to them three times over about 10 years. And the last time I wrote to them, there was, must have been something different in the tone of my letter because they, they, they were interested in me and they came and interviewed me and they said, you know what, we think you're ready. Yeah, I, I, went to, um, I went to Crown Court in Guildford and the judge gave me a two-year probation order with a condition that I reside in the um, rehabilitation centre and he said, if you run away or don't complete the course, you'll be back in front of me or one of my colleagues looking at three or four years. 
No, yeah, it felt like a new era of my life, but it was very, very difficult. There was numerous occasions I just wanted to run away and go back to my hometown and and quit, quit quitting, so to speak. Did you know before you did heroin for the first time that this was going to change your life? Well, I was so dysfunctional at the time. I didn't really, um, didn't really think like that. Right. I was just, um, I guess, in a lot of ways, heroin addiction and taking heroin is. Avoidance, life avoidance, really. Mm. Your parents fuck you up, they do, as Philip Larkin said. So, um, yeah, me and me and my friends, who, most of most most of whom are dead now, um, from heroin overdoses and stuff, or they're, they're walking around my hometown looking like zombies. Um, yeah, we just you know sniffing glue taking heroin taking drugs it was all just avoidance trying to avoid life and there was no I had no aspirations I, I grew up in the uh, in the 70s my my teenage years were in the 70s and it was all about punk rock and nihilism and you know you're not going to reach you know Sid Vicious was my hero and he died of heroin overdose at 21 years old and none of us thought we were going to make it past 21 years old didn't really give a fuck about life or anything or particularly about yourself yeah that was down to my um my dysfunctional father. He was an alcoholic. It was a very sad story, really, because um, he was gay in the 60s. And when you were gay in the 60s, it was a crime and you could be in prison for it. So the majority of gay guys, you know, they'd marry, have children, and be completely frustrated. So he turned to alcohol, and then it became domestically abusive. He used to beat my mum up, he used to beat me up, and, yeah, just beat the crap out of me for years. Until he left. Well, somehow, I guess, my mum got managed to get rid of him when I was about seven years old, eight years old. But by then the damage was done. Yeah, basically, um, yeah, I was in prison yet again and I looked at my children and I just thought, well, my father was an alcoholic and I'm a junkie and what about my kids? I've got, like, I've got a couple of twins, a girl and a boy, and I've got um, a 28-year-old son as well. The twins are 22. And I, looked, I just thought, well, cyclically, they're going to end up as dysfunctional as I am if I don't do something, unless I do something about this. That's when I wrote to the rehab. And that was my biggest driver, I suppose, was to try and change my life to save my children's lives. And now they're functional adults living in London. So what was it like raising children whilst you were a drug addict? Um, well, it was, yeah, as you'd imagine, it was very difficult. Driving around, committing crime with a couple of twins in the back of the car. <laughs> It was just terrible. It was crazy, crazy life, you know. I mean, unless you were there, you wouldn't understand it. You, you couldn't relate to it at all, really. How old were you at the time of your first run-in with the law? I was six years old. I stole a bike. My mum was... By then, my dad wasn't around, so my mum was working so so much that even during the school holidays, we had to go to a, a, a special school so she could continue working. And I, I was just in the playground, and I just wandered off and to this block of flats. And there were some bike sheds, and I just nicked a little a kid's bike. And this is when I should have given up crime altogether because I cycled back to the school. All my mates were like, wow, where'd you get your bike and all that? And then the teachers collared me, and they were like, right, where'd you get that bike? Took me off it, lent it against the fence, took me into the office. This policeman went past and recognised his son's bike leaning against the school fence. And he came into the office, and he's like, what's that? Why is my son's bike? And so this this boy said that some kid up the road just lent it to him. He said, that's impossible. He's stolen it. And then they took me to the police station. I was in a cell 
for a couple of hours. My mum said, well, oh, yeah, I can't come until after work at five or whatever. And they just left me. I was just sitting on the cell, swinging my legs with the door open. They couldn't lock the door because I was too young. But that was six years old. And then from then, I was just fighting in the school playground. By the time I was 12, we were just destroying stuff on building sites. Got arrested, got put in care. My mum couldn't control me. And I was put in care homes. And then when we were in care, we used to just run away on a regular basis and steal stuff and bunk trains everywhere. We went to the Isle of Wight and we, um, yeah, we, it was it was just crazy. We were just robbing fruit machines, fag machines. We just wanted cigarettes, sweets and food. And um, carried on doing that for three years until I went to Borstal, which is like a young man's prison boot camp, I guess. Did two stints in Borstal. 19, I was in prison and then just in and out, in and out, in and out. Violence against the police, credit card fraud, shoplifting, stealing cars. Crazy life. What was prison like? Because I was in care homes in Hampshire, and because of where I grew up in Farnborough was in Hampshire, so that meant the care homes I was in was in Winchester and Southampton. And then my local prison, which is the prison you immediately go to when you're, when you're arrested for something and you're on remand, was Winchester Prison. So the advantage is I'd already, I'd already, I was already involved in a hierarchy in the care homes. So I was always a fighter and I was always in, within the, the, the top of the hierarchy, which meant when I went to prison, I was automatically had my place in that ranking. And uh, I, I never really wanted, I, I always, no, I never got institutionalised. I just always wanted to be back out. But at the same time, uh, we're remarkably resilient creatures, and once you get once you're in there, it's, just, it's similar to school, man. You know, you've got your bullies, and it's it's just like being in a boys' school, basically, but a lot more dangerous because people are getting you know stabbed and cut and stuff like that over drugs or tobacco or owing money and debts and stuff. So my my prison experience wasn't so bad because I was I guess I was quite tough, so people knew not to mess with me, and if they if they if they did, then I could look after myself. Going to prison. For the first, you know, imagine if it was if you went to prison tomorrow, then I I, I wouldn't like to be in your shoes because it would just be. I'm not saying anything terrible would happen to you, but it'd just be such a terrifying experience, not knowing, not having a position in the hierarchy, maybe someone leaning on you at the canteen and saying, right, I want your stuff, and you, and you and either they're going to take your stuff or you've just got to attack them and do your best, give it your best shot, or you become a victim. Every time I went to prison. I'd go to the education department, which was less, you know, you, you still get paid to go to the education department, but you get less wages than if you go into the workshops. So I always went into the education department. And the difference between me and most of my heroin-addicted friends in prison were they would be going, I can't wait to get out of prison and have some heroin. And I'd go, you're fucking mad. I can't wait to get out of prison and have no heroin. Mm-hmm. So I always knew I didn't want to do it. Right. But I was always... Because I always went back to my hometown, mm-hmm. I was just fighting this tidal wave mm. that it was just impossible to fight. So I'd always succumb and end up getting back into crime, back into prison, then get out of prison, go back to my hometown until I went to the drug rehab centre. I was there for, I was a resident for six months and then I was in the halfway house, sort of reintegrating into society for three months. And I moved to, a, I moved to Winchester. I didn't know one individual in the whole city and just started my life again. When I was 35 years old and it felt like I was, I was 16 years old leaving school with, with choices in front of me. Why did you decide to come to Cambridge? I think my mother um, instilled in me a huge thirst for knowledge. So for the 10 years I was in prison, 
I read as, as many literary classics as I could, you know, uh, Victor Hugo, Alexander Dumas, and Solzhenitsyn, all of Thomas Hardy. I read so many, so I've read more books than anyone else I know. I, as a consequence, I was always good at spelling, I was always good at English, so as a consequence, I taught myself to write to a standard where I was able to be accepted by Cambridge University. And I taught myself loads of musical instruments, and I just got tons of energy and tons of, um, yeah, really, really productive with my time. Whilst reading for my dissertation, I read a particular paper, and I think it was called Fuck It, something to do with the Matzo process, written by Ruth Armstrong and Serena Williams from the Institute of Criminology in Cambridge. At the bottom, there was an email, and I sent an email to the Ruth Armstrong at cam.ac.uk. I had no idea what that email even meant at the time. I just said, this is a great paper. I'm doing um, a dissertation, undergrad dissertation in music in, in prisons, and she sent me an email back saying one of my undergrad students is doing the same thing. She sings for King's College Choir and she's taking choirs into Bedford Prison and all this. So, um, yeah, be in touch. She copied her in and suggested some other papers I might like to read and then said we're doing a, we're, we're having um, some seminars called The Subversive Good. Uh, the next one's in a couple of months. Why don't you come to Cambridge and join in the seminar, which I did. I came to Cambridge and uh, it was great, you know, the, these guys stood up at the back, sang some choral music, which was beautiful, and then there was um, the girl did some talking, and then there was some Q&A at the end. After the seminar, I said to Ruth, can I grab 10 minutes of your time before I drive back to Wales? It was like a three-hour drive. And she said, look, I've got to go and get my daughter from school. Here's my address. Jasmine, the undergrad student, will show you, will give you the game kings and queens guided tour sort of thing. Then come to my house, and we can have a discussion. I went to her house, she cooked me dinner, and said, tell me your life story. At the end of it, she said, you should do, do really well at your undergrad degree, and then apply here, and you can come here, do a master's and a PhD, and I'll be your supervisor. And then in the interview, they said, why did you choose Cambridge, and who else have you, which other universities have you applied to? I said, none. I chose Cambridge because your colleague invited me. We also spoke with Ulysses Chow, a second year lawyer at Wolfson. Ulysses is a hiker, former nomad and human rights activist who worked as a private investigator in Hong Kong before he came to Cambridge. Ulysses used to spend his time infiltrating brothels and stalking adulterous husbands, but now you can find him studying in the law faculty. Were sexual infidelity cases the most common? I, I wouldn't say so. Custody cases are the most common. Um, and and then you have some random people that they just want to know what their ex-wives or what their um, ex-husbands or ex-boyfriend, girlfriends doing. And you have some um, strict parents wanting to know whether or not their children are dating another child or not. Yeah. Did anyone ever work out that you were a private investigator who was investigating them? Yeah, that was a very smart barrister that worked out that I was a private investigator tracking him. Because on that day, I well, it was mainly me and another girl investigating him. And then, like, he saw me several times. And actually, he lived in a very remote island called Changzhou in Hong Kong. So when he got on the ship, and then I got on the ship as well. And then, like, this person has been tracking me for a day long. 
and he's now on a ship and then he came to me and then like started to record a video of me and stuff yeah so what would you say was kind of the most interesting case or the most kind of ex- extreme case that you ever investigated i would what say was the most memorable? yeah I, I would say most of the cases are quite memorable but there was one case where a priest like a religious priest um this honey priest he i don't know how to say that in english like he goes to the prostitutes like three mm-hmm. times a week or f- sometimes four times yeah four times a week he's he's quite smart like he brings a lot of clothes every single time he goes to the prostitute he went to the prostitutes and he just dress up in the toilet and come out like with some makeup as well so we didn't recognize him like only after a month we really took evidence of it like photos of it what we did was um so we took photo of him talking to a prostitute and then they went up to the room and then we took we took photo of it and then we took another photo when he and and, and that prostitute went down to back to the street and then i i i took a video like you have some pockets on the shirt right sometimes and i put my phone there and then i took a video and then i talked to a prostitute to confirm that she was actually a prostitute and then like we went up to that room and i asked her to take off her clothes to prove that she was in fact a court prostitute and then just told her that i'm not in the mood to do anything and just left Did you have a comment to contact with other private investigators um we were investigating the barrister and then obviously as a barrister he has some connection with other private investigation companies and i think he hired another private investigation company to counter investigate us like to take picture of us i think he's trying to establish that we are causing harassment to him to stop us from investigating him anymore yeah so these are so the man you were investigating yeah. hired his own investigator to investigate to invest- you yes to check that you were investigating him yeah because i because i was waiting outside of his office like outside of the building where the office is situated in um and then i saw some people were taking photos of me <laughs> like quite obvious they're quite bad private investigators <laughs> would you say that any kind of particular skills that you picked up for being private investigators because obviously being a private investigator is quite unusual as you said most people don't have friends who are private investigators do you feel like you picked up on any kind of skills or the experience unusual experiences that you have that affect the way that you live your life now okay um let me organize a bit um I think, like, indeed, I, I picked up a lot of skills, like how to sneakily take photos of people, but which I will not practice now. Like, Have you I'm taken not... any photos of us during the interview? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> and I'm not lying. Uh, and I think the most meaningful skills I've learned from being a private investigator was that I could just look at how other people live their lives. Like, you know this guy, he is going to Starbucks every day at 7am to buy a cappuccino and he goes to work. And then after work, he goes to a bar, um, socialising with his friends. Another day the same, another day the same. Then you have this girl, she's dating another boy. Yeah, so it's like... It's the sort anthropological of, element. 
of being a pro investigator. You get to watch people. No, I mean it's kind of quite mundane. Yeah, I mean you're you're, you're sort of like getting to know how other people actually live. It's like you're intimate. not, it yeah, quite intimately, and because usually we we only know what our services are doing, but by being a private investigator, you're actually living other people's life, and you may know actually how to proper understand other people, what they're thinking, and because some people are out of your circle like the barrister, and you can actually get insight on like how people, how the people from our background actually live their lives. Did you ever stop to think about the ethics or moral implications of what you were doing? Because you're only violating the minimal privacy, you're not going into her house or her, her flat or something, you just taking a video of what the public will see because she's on the street right you just take videos of it and yeah everyone else on the street can see that um i think there's there's, there's reported with among spies kind of in kind of east germany in particular whereby Um, you'd have like a stasi agent who would watch a person not just for a month but for years and would kind of get feel like a kind of a weird kind of attachment because you kind of you're spending all your time watching this person but they don't know you're there mm-hmm. and you know all these kind of very intimate details about their life how would you say that if, did that ever affect you in terms of you were like oh that's strange i'm never going to see this person again because the job's done but i've know every aspect of their life and, and they they kind of don't know it's quite kind of stilted um to be honest i i don't miss any of my targets um, I think because like you you get to know him quite well, um, but it's it's quite different from like um, getting to know him as a friend or in other in other forms of relationship like friendship or like relatives or stuff. It's just you when you're investigating, you know you now you know that you're just. Um, doing your job and when the job is done you you may, maybe you get some attachment like want to know what the consequences to him or her will be but I never got the like emotional attachment that like well maybe sometimes I will sympathize with with the with the target but never like I will miss him and want to see him again that would be quite psychological. Mm, yeah, I mean, would you also ever be aware of, um, so let's say you're investigating someone for an extramarital affair, you discover they are having the affair, you then tell your company who informs the spouse who hired you. Were you ever aware of what happened after that? No, no, we're not. The yeah. cut off and... Yeah. 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 Do you want to be aware? Sometimes. Yeah, I just, I want to, I want to know what happened to the priest afterwards because... It's just like um, as if I'm telling you a story and then I stop in the middle. That would be quite annoying, isn't it? And just want to know the, the consequence of it. Yeah. If you ever were in Hong Kong and you were, I don't know, in Starbucks or something and you saw someone there who you previously privately investigated, would you ever tell them? What do you mean? Would you ever tell them I was the private investor? Many years, let's say it's in 10 years' time, and you're a lawyer in Hong Kong, and you see <laughs> someone in Starbucks who you're like, oh, I, I remember that's the really barrister 10 years ago. Like, <laughs> would you tell them? Would you go up to them and say, and you wouldn't be, you're just a private citizen, would you ever say, oh, I private investigated you? It depends. 
Mm. Like, um, if I just come across them as strangers, then I wouldn't tell them. Like, it would be quite creepy, isn't it? But if we become like close friends, many years later, yeah. then I possibly I would possibly mm. tell him. But um, knowing that perhaps I have ruined his or her life by investigating him or her, um, that may sort of it's kind of weird to tell that person. Joshua Agbo has recently completed a PhD at Anglia Ruskin University and has published books on alternative narratives in African history. I spoke to him this week about his experiences of studying in Nigeria and the UK and his thoughts on the political development of his home country of Nigeria. Um, before I came to England for my PhD research, I was teaching at a university back home in Nigeria and I got you know, a scholarship from TED Fund. I'm a TED Fund scholar. I left in 2015, January 2015, to do a research on the literature of trauma, exile, and the politics of belonging. What does it mean to belong in a new space? Um, basically, that was what I did, you know, in my PhD. It was such, you know, an interesting work. At the end of the day, it was recommended to Routledge for publication, and I'm working on that now, turning it into a book. Hopefully, between our next year or so, it should be, you know, um, we should be pressing towards the publication of the thesis. So I understand yeah. that you have several published works. Yeah, correct? I have. Yeah. I have. My first book, really, um, was how Europe, I mean, how Africans underdeveloped Africa, a forgotten truth in history, which is a kind of response, a rejoinder towards Rodney's how Europe underdeveloped Africa. Because what we do know in the design of African historiography over time has been the fact that, oh, the European colonizers did this to us, they did that to us, and all of that. So that has become a dominant narrative, a dominant you know, argument all through the design of post-colonial you know, studies. So having looked at that and having, you know, having read the book, How Europe and the Developed Africa, and I was questioning why did African historians let that be for over three decades. That the book was published, you no, know, it was first published in 1972 in Dar es Salaam. And no African historical critic would you know, think otherwise to question you know, the basis of that argument. So, okay, fine, it's long overdue. Can we change the narrative now? We've got independence. Basically, we could argue that colonialism, the white colonialism, lasted on the continent for 72 years. All right? And after that, independence was granted. Fine. Good. After the independence, what happened? The black people are in charge of their own affairs now. So what are they doing with their own independence? What are they doing with their own freedom? And how far have they gone since they got independence from the former, you know, colonizers? People of my generation have really, you know, turned around to move away from that dominant argument that no colonizers did this, colonizers did that, and all of that, to look to hold their own leaders responsible. Yeah, back home in Nigeria, um, I finished my first degree um, in linguistics, general linguistics. And it so happened that I graduated at the top of my class. So there's a scheme we call um, NYC after your first degree, within, if you are under, the, I mean, less than 30, you have to go for that 
one-year mandatory, you know, training uh, where you serve your motherland. This is military. Uh, it's so. a kind of military training, okay. of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank yeah. you. It's kind of military training. Yeah. So, so I did that from 2009 to 2010, just one year. And as a reward for my academic, you know, performance, I was, you know, given a job. I was employed immediately as a graduate assistant. So upon the completion of my studies in 2012 to 13, I finished in 2012 and my result was approved on. But I got the PhD admission before my result was approved on because there was a politics around it really where I was told to my face by the former head of department that he was holding down my result essentially because of my colleagues who started with me but hadn't finished at the time. So what I did was I got up one early morning and I read the entire book of Esther and I got to where the book says, look, if I die, I die, or if, you know, if I perish, I perish. And I walked up, so I reported him to the authorities and look, I finished long ago and he's holding my result down simply because of colleagues who hadn't finished. Because perhaps I was maybe too radical for them to handle and you know what that means when you stand up to tell the truth, to confront you no know, power in the eye, to say, no, this is wrong, and we never need to do it. They see you either as a rebel or as an enemy of the state. Meanwhile, they are the real problems. And I say, come on, how do you sanitize evil when you stand to gain and you turn around to cry out when it turns up against you? That is double mm. standard, and we can't continue to double down that way. So how was life, how was it, what, what was it like transitioning from... Mm the state where you'd lived all your life, where you'd studied, where you'd done your undergraduate, your master's degree, you've been a professor, and then suddenly you come mm. across the world to yeah. Anglia Ruskin yeah. and in living in Cambridge. Mm. What was that transition like? Was it difficult or how did yeah, you adjust? Yeah, it was a difficult journey really because, um, you know, once the name of Africa is mentioned, what you know, comes to mind is that it's a continent full of, you know, hunger, if you like. Uh, it's a continent, the image of disease, hunger, poverty, corruption, all of these, you know, come to mind. So Africa today, Africa of my time before I left home, life wasn't too difficult then as it is now. Because now people survive merely by the skin of their teeth. All right? It is a country where workers are the working symbols of state oppression, months on end, year, one year plus, no salaries, no nothing. You know how difficult it is. And these are people who, who have got families, all right, to cater for. Kids are dropping out of school. And what annoys me is the fact that the government continues to run the economy by propaganda, lies, that they are doing this, they are doing that, they are doing that. That's not a true reflection of what the country has become today. So what I did was just to step out of that you know, academic, you know, one academic culture to have an experience of what it is like to write, you know, to do a research in a, in a different academic context, 
You understand me? Mm -hmm. So now I have two academic, you know, cultural experiences, that of Nigerian and that of UK. Mm. And so what were some um, differences in those cultures? Yeah, the differences I would say um, is that, one, my academic writing was, was, you know, really, really improved upon when I crossed over to the UK to write Africa through the European lens, if you ask me. Uh, having access, of course, to research materials, the library you have around, the online, the digital, you know, stuff and everything. The uninterrupted power, you know, supply, of course, gives you that enormous advantage over those who are struggling in a continent that you hardly have electricity supply. I'm sorry, it's a reflection of my own country. I was really invited to Oxford in 2016, mm. the 9th of March, to join other black students protesting. We, we marched from Oreo College to the heart of Oxford, demonstrating not essentially to follow the idea of, you know, pulling down the statue of a road. Right and all that. Yeah, you understand yeah. me? Because what we were doing alternatively was that, look, you have to decolonize okay, the, the white academy, you know, the curriculum. And so we cannot just deny that. Mm. So I'm glad to be part of that project, and I think I'm thankful to God for being, you know, invited over to join, you know, um, other black students, demonstrating, create this space for black studies as well. And that is what we are trying to say in Cambridge here. Bringing black people, create, you know, don't strip away the canons of these people. They've mm. got something to contribute to the body of scholarship. Yeah. That's all we've got time for, but thank you for joining us on this week's episode on Maturing with Age. This episode can be downloaded wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to get updates on our future episodes. Each week, Switchboard connects listeners with people around Cambridge who have interesting stories to tell. If you've heard anything unusual around Cambridge this week, make sure to get in touch with us by emailing switchboard at varsity.co.uk. This has been Rafael Gorb-Hoffman and Ariel Cohen on Switchboard.